Thanks, Janae. Good morning, everybody. We're continuing in our sermon series this week on the Lord's Prayer. We're calling it Teach Us to Pray, and we're going line by line through the Lord's Prayer, some of which may be really familiar to a lot of you, some of which this may be totally new. This is the prayer that Jesus offered to his disciples, taught to them when they said to him, this simple request, this humble request, Lord, teach us to pray. Uh, A a research study recently pointed out that about 60% of Americans say they pray regularly, but what for and in what direction and with what means is really something that we want to speak to in this series. And so to that end, I want to begin by telling y'all a story about a rather eccentric pursuit. This is uh, A.J. Jacobs. He's a writer for the New York Times. And some of you may have seen the article that he wrote about six months ago going around called Trying to Live a Day Without Plastic. Without Plastic. Now, just take stock of your body right now. Take stock of what's in your pockets or in your bag. How many things have some iota of plastic in them? Quite a lot, right? And so his journey was, I'm going to write this article about what it's like to try to not physically touch, use, or handle plastic for one day. And it would be cheating to put gloves on, right? Like that doesn't count, okay? So how many ways can he avoid using plastic for one day? He's sitting here in the subway in New York City. How many, been, how many of you have taken a subway ride in New York City? Okay, what are the seats made out of? Vintage, 1970s, 1980s, plastic, shatterproof plastic. So he can't sit on the seats in the subway, so what does he do? He brings along a wooden chair. Like, you know, you see a guy getting on the subway carrying a chair, no big deal, right? This is New York City, it's normal. Uh, His clothing, I'd like to point out the lovely sweater that he's wearing in the heat of a New York City summer, by the way. This is a totally wool sweater. No fibers, no synthetics in that clothing. Same thing with his pants, same thing with his shoes. There's a bag kind of nestled behind him. That's a cloth grocery bag, right? Why did he have that with him? Well, he went out to try to go eat lunch, and he went to Whole Foods, and you would imagine Whole Foods is supportive of things like this. So he shows up with his bag, and he has a glass baking dish, and he goes over to the salad bar at Whole Foods. Just picture this, because you know we all go to Whole Foods from time to time. It's a splurge. Instead of using the plastic grabbers, he brought his own like metal tongs from home, and that's when, like, whatever the attendant is at Whole Foods was kind of like, you need to go. Like, you, that's not going to work. Sorry. So he tried to get food. And then, of course, the cherry on top is when he goes to bed that night, guess what he cannot sleep on? His mattress. Because your mattress has artificial fibers in it, right? So he gets out every, like, wool and cotton blanket they have in their house, makes himself a little pallet on the floor, grabs like their one cotton non-synthetic fiber bed sheet, wraps himself up in it and goes to sleep. That was his day without plastic. Now, why are we talking about this? When we think about all the ways that our lives are so convenient, plastic is one of many things that makes it convenient, right? Like all the different things that are built for us, like this little clicker I'm using, all the things that are made of plastic are meant to make our lives easier to a degree. What he chose to do was not easy. It was exceedingly inconvenient for him. It meant that he had to say no to a lot of the conveniences of modern life. It meant that that day, which he classified in his article, trying to live a day without plastic, that day was set apart from all the other days of his life, right? Maybe that's the only day he ever tries to live this way. 
But it made a point, didn't it? it? It was an article that I remembered. Now you all know about it. You can go look it up online. It was to point toward a greater truth. The greater truth is we use a lot of plastic, and it winds up in the ocean, and it's gross, and it's not good stewardship. And I mean, these are all things that I think people of faith can appreciate too. But in his pursuit of telling that truth, he has to take, some would say, extreme measures to set himself apart. And, you know, the other people on the subway that saw him bringing in a wooden chair, I mean, they're not phased by this. This is New York City, right? But we would say, like, that's a little extreme. That's a little excessive to carry that around with you. And yet, I think his purpose was achieved in that he lived set apart from plastic. He lived, in a sense, a holier life for a day. Now, our world scoffs at the idea of holiness. I think Christians actually scoff at the idea of holiness to a degree. Why? Because to say that you're holy, to self-proclaim that about yourself is obnoxious, irritating, not true. And in the history of especially the Western church, we have seen things like various holiness movements or the emphasis on a certain type of puritanical approach to living your life. We don't associate that with positive pursuit of God. We, see, we associate that with oppressiveness, with keeping people down. We don't want to be talked to about holiness because we'll feel bad. It, it just, it's part and parcel of what it means to live in our culture and yet to be a part of the faith that Jesus proclaimed is to take holiness seriously. And we're going to try to make the case for that this week. Why are we even talking about this? Because today's text talks about our Father in heaven, holy is your name. You are holy. You are set apart. You are like the guy trying to live his life without plastic, but at a much deeper and more substantive level. And that's not a unique characteristic of God in the sense that God invites us into the pursuit of holiness. And we shouldn't roll our eyes at it. We shouldn't scoff at it. I'll tell you all a story later on about how I've had to kind of come to grips with my own wrestling with this idea of holiness and why I think more than ever the church needs to take holiness seriously because God takes it seriously. We are called to pursue a holy life You can call it whatever you want. You can call it a Christ-like life. You can call it a set-apart life. But here's today's thesis. To pursue a Christ-like life, to pursue Christ-like character, we need to begin with prayer. To pursue holiness, we need to begin with prayer. When people start to think about holiness, they get worried that they're going to have to do more spiritual exercises or work themselves into kind of a lather around it. That's not the case. Beginning with prayer is how we enter into a more holy life. What do we mean when we say holiness? Well, This is how Webster's defines it, and then we'll get into our outline. Holiness simply means worthy of absolute devotion, sacred, set apart. That's a little bit what the author was doing with this pursuit of no plastic. He was seeking a more sacred, non-plastic way of life, or having a divine quality. That's how our world defines it. We're going to get into how the scriptures define it in just a moment. But that's our thesis. That's kind of the main definition we'll work with today. And then here's our outline. We're going to look at the prayer actually not in its exact order. We're going to talk about holy is your name. Then we're going to talk about the address, our Father. And then we'll talk about next steps. Okay, so let's begin by going a little bit more into what holiness is, what it isn't, and why it matters. So we looked at that definition. This is the Greek New Testament definition of the word that's actually used in the text. So the text that Janae just read for us. If whatever translation you read, it will say things like, holy is your name, or let us keep your name holy, or hallowed be your name. That's what I grew up with. Hallowed is simply the Greek verb, not an adjective, 
to make holy, to get inside of something and fashion it into a more holy state. Other ways that the Bible talks about this is the word sanctification, the process by which people, ordinary people, just like you and me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can become more like Jesus, which is therefore more holy, more set apart, more in the presence of God with consistency. Now, again, we've talked about this. There's a negative implication whenever we use the word holy because our culture doesn't revere holiness. Holier than thou is not a compliment. When someone offers you the word holy in conversation, you pick up on it, right? Because it's not something that our world talks about often or values. Because we think it's not realistic, because if you do say that you are pursuing holiness, you sound like an empty pietist at best or a narcissist at worst. And in some ways, the critiques of how the church has approached holiness in the past that it's been used to kind of beat people up, those are not unfounded critiques, But I worry that we throw the baby out with the bathwater when we say, I don't really need to worry about holiness. There's a lot of other things I want to spend my time on. Holiness just feels like a bridge too far. I I can't reach that height, that that, that cookie's on the, the shelf that I can't get to. I don't think that's true. In Exodus chapter 3, a very unholy person, by one sense of the word, Moses, because he's a murderer, because he's run away from the scene of the crime, because he's abandoned his life as a person in Egypt, He's running into the wilderness, and he has this encounter with the burning bush with Almighty God, which should be a comfort to us, by the way, because if you think you need to be holy to have an encounter with God, go read Moses' story. Go read the story of any of the great leaders of the Bible, and you will go, boy, these people, they had all kinds of garbage going on in their life, and yet God, in his grace, still meets with them. The Lord said to Moses, when Moses saw the burning bush, come no closer. Wait, hold on before you come in here. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground, set apart, sacred. Do you, ha- do you have encounters with spaces, places in your life that feel holy or set apart? Some people would say coming into a church is a holy and set apart place. When you cross through the threshold of those doors, you are in a different place. And I think there's something valuable to that. We'll talk about holy places a little bit later on. But make no mistake, from the very beginning of the witness of Scripture, holiness matters to God. Why would he say this to Moses unless he wanted Moses to really understand and appreciate that being in the presence of God is different, set apart, other than the rest of his life? Moses left that conversation a different person. Know that if you encounter God's holiness even by accident, God didn't see it as an accident. And he intends for you to leave that place a different person. Later on in the New Testament, this word that we mentioned a moment ago, hagiazo, it comes up a whole bunch of different times. But the one that stuck out to me is from the letter to the Hebrews. It says this, Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate on the cross in order to hagiazo, sanctify, make holy the people, his people, the church, by his own blood. Now, why do we need to mention this? In Moses' encounter with God, God says, the ground you are standing upon is holy. Literally, this moment, this place is a holy place. What Jesus has done is he's gone beyond that to say, now I'm in and with you. It isn't just where you stand. It is what he has done to call us toward himself, to call us toward a life that is more righteous, more just, and more holy And here's the great thing. This is what I love about this. 
There's nothing in here about what the people did. This is about the one who was abandoned, the one who was nailed to a cross, the one whose blood was spilled. It is all about Jesus. So this is an important point to clarify at this point in our sermon. If you're hearing me talk to you about holiness and you are feeling bad about it, I get that. But holiness is not about you. Holiness is about the God who gives it as a gift, who invites us into his presence, who says, if you live a life up to your own devices, I guarantee you it's not going to go well for you. But if you move just an inch in my direction, just a little bit in the way that I have so ordered the world, a little bit more holy, your life, oh man, it will look so much better. It'll be so much more fulfilling. It'll be the most wonderful thing and it will cost you. Like that guy wandering around New York City carrying around the glass baking dish. You will look a little funny as you pursue a life of holiness. But I just want to make this clear, church. I think the alternative of of sort of scoffing at holiness and not wanting that, that's a terrible option. Nobody wants to live in the kingdom of Travis Fletcher. That would be great for me and terrible for everyone else. We'll talk about that next week when we say, your kingdom come and your will be done. All of our little kingdoms, our little queendoms, the places where we have our rule and reign, those are dark and terrible places for everyone else except us. But if we live a life where we say, you know what, (laughs) I am not a perfect person, but I desire to have an encounter with the holy God. I desire to receive the gift of holiness from God. If you make it about what God is doing in you and not your moral fortitude, you will find a pathway into holiness because God's people have always been called to this. They've always been called to this. And the way that we can do this is to start personally. So let's turn our attention now to this first phrase, our Father in heaven. This is the address, right? Like if you play golf, you have to address the ball before you can actually take your swing. This is the address to the Father. Who is this prayer to? It is not to some random person. It is to our Father in heaven. Now, we live in a world that is in some ways maybe overeducated about the challenges and the problems with fathers. There's a deficit of dads who invest in the lives of their kids. There is more study in a good way that helps elevate the challenges that people face with their relationships with their dads. I am sensitive to that. I am appreciative of that. In the church, there has been different sort of threads trying to address this. So, for example, you may have seen recently the Church of England, a huge part of Christendom, is studying the idea of removing the language of Father from their worship, from their liturgy. They're saying, you know, there's enough concern here that for our people, maybe we don't want to use this word anymore. It's too loaded. There's too much baggage. While I appreciate that, I don't agree with that. And I don't think that we, as this expression of God's church, should agree with that. And here's why. Jesus used the word Father. And he didn't use the word Father as a weapon. And he didn't use it to traumatize people. He used it to point toward a singular reality, that there is a Father who did it right, that there is a Father who did it good, and there is a Father who loves his children passionately and completely, without any sin, and we should not throw that away. All of us who are fathers, (laughs) we know how much we mess up. (laughs) We know it. We know some of it. We need our spouses to tell us the most of it, but you know what I mean. But there is a father who got it right. 
And that's why I think the way Jesus instructed this was never meant to beat anybody up. It was meant to say, there is a good, good father, our father. He could have said, my father, in other parts of the New Testament, he prayed, my father, in this prayer, because it was instructive, because it was for his congregation, his disciples, he said, our father, this is all of us sharing this relationship with the father. And I think that's another reason that we don't throw it away. We don't jettison the reality of how wonderful it is that our God would say to us, you can call me Father. Have you ever met someone really important, uh, you know, like a celebrity or the CEO of your company, and you say to them, well, it's very nice to meet you, Mrs. Smith, or it's very nice to meet you, Mr. Gates, or whatever, and they say, oh, no, no, please call me Janet. Please call me Bill. They give you permission to say something to them in a more familial tone, Right? That's a little bit of what God is doing here. He's saying, you, you can just address me as Father. You don't have to come up with all these different names. The Old Testament, the rabbinic laws are chock full of all these different names given to God, some of which are beautiful and appropriate and wonderful, but they can create barriers to being able to relate to God on an intimate level. Jesus chose to use the word Father because people would have understood it. It wasn't fancy-pants religious language. It was This is the word in the Greek that people would have known and used the most to refer to their fathers. And he also used this word to draw his people, the church, into a greater understanding of what it means to relate to God. Remember, this is the ancient Near East. So this is the time of the Roman Empire, of Greco-Roman religions. Were the gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman religions nice to people? Were they inviting us to a familial relationship with them? Were they sort of doting and like patting their people on the head? No, 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 no. (laughs) The gods and goddesses of the ancient Near East were meant to terrify you, oppress you, and keep you in check lest you made them angry and they smote you. There was not a kind and loving relationship with any of them. The very best you could do in those religious systems was to keep the gods from not killing you or people that you love. That sounds like an awful system to live under. But what Jesus introduced here, what changed the world, is this idea of a God that we can relate to as a parent, as a father, as someone who knows us, who has seen us from the day we were born, and who gets us. This was a completely new paradigm for prayer. And it's something that I believe the church needs to continue to hold tight to. Now, we're going to kind of make our turn here now to like the application, like what do we do with all this? You might remember the story of the transfiguration. This is a little hard to see on my slide, but the transfiguration is from Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus goes on a hike up the mountains with three of his disciples, and then he is revealed in his glory and holiness to them. This painting depicts three figures in dark here at the bottom, and then you can just barely make out this figure of Jesus up there at the top. And the light and the radiance and the power that is coming from him, blows them away. One of the things that I gravitated toward in this painting is how other these guys look. The light is sort of piercing them at different times. It's almost like it's coming through parts of them, but they're still pretty opaque, are they not? In the presence and the holiness of God, our unholiness is made real clear. Very clear. If you live your life only in darkness and you never see the light, when you finally see the light, it hurts. It's painful. 
catches you off guard. It's like flipping a light switch on in your bedroom in the middle of the night. Like, oh, geez. That's a little bit of what's happening here. And I want us to think about this moment from the disciples' perspective because it's how they interact with the holy God that changes them. They come off that mountain changed. Peter, James, and John, these three disciples, they become transformative leaders for the church. But they came from this encounter of the holiness of God, not talking about their own achievements or how, yo, I was there, I saw it, it it happened. No, they talked about Jesus. They talked about his holiness. They wrote incredible words in the scriptures about how the holiness of God compels us to move forward. And so I want to say this, that as we go back to our premise that prayer is how you live a holier life. Prayer is the entry point into understanding what this needs to look like for you and for me. Remember this. The disciples were not the architects of this experience. God called them there. God made that place holy. God brought Moses and Elijah into their midst. Peter, remember, he stumbles over his words like, oh my gosh, this is so great. We should build some tents and hang out here all day. And that's the moment when God says, time to go. You got to go. You got to go back down the mountain, right? This is what an experience of the holiness of God can look like. So I want you to kind of rummage around in your mind for a moment and try to think of a time when you encountered God's holiness, when you saw something, when you felt something, when you experienced a moment, and you didn't build it, but there is something other, something set apart, something different. In the darkness that so often dominates your life and my life, John Wesley called it the rival creature. The rival creature shrinks away at the light. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you encountered that? Thousands of college students in the middle of Kentucky experienced this over the last few weeks at this revival at this little Christian college. What a beautiful thing. They've had an encounter with the holy, have they not? When was the last time you had an encounter with the otherness of God? Maybe it was in a worship service. Maybe you were just kind of drawn into a time of just deep, fervent prayer, and you had this encounter with the Lord in your prayers. Those are beautiful moments. I mention all this to say, as we pray toward living a holier life, don't write certain things off because you don't expect them to be holy. The disciples thought they were just going on a hike with Jesus. They didn't expect to have this powerful experience of the Holy Spirit. Those students at Asbury, they did not expect that their calendar year would be marked by revival, but here it was. I want to show you a place that I have found to be holy. This is a hospital room. Most people do not associate hospital rooms with holiness. Most people don't ever want to go into a hospital or see a hospital room unless you work in the medical field. Hospital rooms aren't holy in the sense that they're always clean. If, you know, elemental, base-level human experiences happen in hospital rooms, I don't need to go into too much detail around that. But in my experiences as a pastor, some of the greatest privileges I've ever had is to be invited into people's hospital rooms to pray with them, to talk with them. And this is where the holiness really starts to come in, you guys. 
when I'm invited into the room when someone is nearing the end of their life. All I can tell you is that room just feels different. It is other. It is set apart. Not because it's room 314 on the fourth floor at blah, blah, blah. No, because of the God who comes in to that space in a powerful way and says, this space is mine. This person is making a move from this life to the next. I got them. That's what I've encountered in the room with people. It's, it's heartbreaking to be in the room with someone who's losing their life. I'm not minimizing that pain. But I guarantee you there is a holiness in the presence of God in hospital rooms where people are about to die. Most people don't think about it like that. Our world doesn't think about it like that. Actually, people who work in the hospital think about it like that. But most of your friends, most of your colleagues, most of your kids' friends, most of the teachers at your school, most of the people that you run into in your workplace, they do not look for the holiness of God in a hospital room. But we as the people of God are called, I believe very much called, to say, no, that's a, that is a holy place. God can be present there. Don't write that off. God can be present in your kitchen. You can have a sacred meal and have an incredible conversation with your neighbors. If you would just open up the door to your home and invite them in, God can set that space apart as holy. I've had holy conversations with my children sitting on the edge of their bed, praying for them at night. It's just their bedroom. It's just a bed, but God sets it apart. God makes it holy. Do we have eyes to see that? Do we have ears to hear the beckoning of the Holy Spirit in these ordinary places to say, God is here, God is present. Let us recognize this. Like Moses said, like, take off your sh- or like God said to Moses, take off your shoes. I wouldn't recommend taking off your shoes in a hospital room. Don't do it. <laughs> but recognize that God's holiness is there. And if we are looking for it, if we are asking him for it, he will meet us in that. So what do we need to do with all this? This is Eugene Peterson. He's the author of The Message. A biography of him came out two years ago called A Burning in My Bones. Have any of you read it? It's terrific. It was written by a family friend of his family. And one of the things the family gave to this author was Eugene Peterson's journals, like his inner monologues, his wrestling with God. It's powerful. One of the things Peterson prayed for throughout his life was this simple desire, I want to be holy. He would write that. He would say, I want to be a saint. I want to be holy. And I remember reading that, and I'm just confessing a little dark part of my soul. I remember reading that and kind of scoffing at it. Like, (laughs) really? You want to be holy? Like, you're Eugene Peterson. Like, you want to change the world through your teaching. You want to write all these incredible books, right? But the older I get, the further along I get in faith, the more I think Eugene Peterson knew exactly what he was talking about. Because to desire holiness is one of the greatest things that God could ever plant inside your heart and bring to fruition. He does that work. We join him in that work through prayer. But like Peterson, to release that and to scoff at it, and like our world does, to say, no, 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 holiness is just how you go around beating people up. To minimize it cuts us off from the life that God would have for us. It is scary to think about the alternatives that you and I could pursue in our lives if we say no to holiness. 
If we say no to God doing any more in my life or changing any more of my character or bringing out something different in me, if we just say, no, holiness is ridiculous. There's just no way to do that. I think we are very much limiting what God can do in our lives. And I'm sad for the ways that in my own life, I've just come to accept my own darkness, my own sin, my own struggles. Oh, that'll never get better. Or maybe it will. Or maybe that's exactly what God wants for us. Not moral perfection, not how do you measure yourself against this other person. No, simply saying to Jesus, Jesus, you see all of my character. There's not a bit of my heart that is hidden from you. Here's the way that I pray at church. Jesus, would you just chip away at my character? I've I've shared this with you all before, but for me, the image of a sculptor is very helpful. A sculptor works on a piece of marble to reveal the sculpture within that. So if your character, my character, is like this unformed piece of marble, and God is chipping away at it and revealing his desires for you, well, it may not always feel that good. It may reveal some surprising things about you. But in time, it will be an incredible work of art an incredible witness to the power of Almighty God. And the marble isn't in charge of how it gets formed. The sculptor is. So would you ask the sculptor, God, go to work on my heart. (laughs) It's a scary thing to ask. (laughs) Because God's going to pick the work that he wants to do in you. You You don't get to choose it. But I believe these are the prayers that the church is called to live into in this season. Not to scoff at holiness, not to write it off, not to obsess over whether we're hitting the right marks, no. But in the freedom and grace that Christ gives to us to say, there's a lot of me that I need some help with, God. Would you help me? In your way, in your timing, with your methods, would you make my heart more like your heart? That's, that's what we're asking for when we say, God, work on me in my holiness. Make me more like your son, Jesus. So, we'll finish with these practical insights, some next steps, some fun emojis to go with it, because I felt like putting emojis in there this week. Last week, we talked about 10 minutes. Maybe you've taken us up on this, maybe not. 10 minutes, if you don't already pray regularly, set a timer on your phone, or the kitchen timer, or the timer on your microwave, or whatever, 10 minutes, and just try it. Try praying for 10 minutes. Try it daily. Try it five days a week. Try it. And if you already have a good prayer routine, try silence. 10 minutes of silence. It's tougher than you think, but it's more rewarding than you can imagine. The second encouragement is to track holiness and unholiness. When you are in a place, when you are in a conversation that feels like it's holy ground, make a note of that. Write it down. Put a little thing in your phone. And I say that because it's important to revisit places where we've experienced the holiness of God. This is part of what's so good about coming to worship together because God in his mercy will reveal holy moments to us in this place and it matters to be in this place, to be here. I'm reminded of the holiness of God every hospital room I walk into and I thank God for that. So keep track of that holiness. Keep track of the unholiness, the places of struggle. Not to beat yourself up, but to say to God, hey, I got a long list of things here that are going to be really good to work on. I need your help with my selfishness. I need your help with my secrecy. I need your help with my finances, all these places where I've experienced brokenness. If we don't keep track of them, we'll never do any of them. We'll never hold any of it up to God. So track your holiness and holiness. And then finally, Participate in the 24-7 prayer opportunity. 
One of the things that has been revealed to me over the years is when I commit something like an hour to prayer, which feels kind of scary, like that's a lot of time, God uses all of it for his glory, and the first 10 or 15 minutes is just kind of me getting through all my stuff, and then after that, oh man, when you know you've still got 45 minutes left on the clock, God goes to work in your heart in surprising ways, in delightful ways, in difficult ways, but if you offer that hour to him, I guarantee you God will do things in that time that you cannot imagine. That will be so good for you and so good for your heart, so good for your family and so good for the world. So take this opportunity. Pick an hour. I'm, I'm getting up an extra hour early on Tuesday of Holy Week just because I picked that day and I'm going to be asking the Lord to go to work on my heart. I hope you'll join me in that. Now we're going to turn our attention to coming to the Lord's table. And so I invite you to pray with me as we kind of make this turn from the discussion of holiness and the discussion of prayer, and now coming to the presence of Jesus at his table. Let's pray together. So God, we thank you for your great gifts, which include your word, which include prayer and worship and the scripture and the chance to be in your presence. Thank you.